I sort of go into a collaborative process or meeting knowing I only know what I know, right? But somebody, no matter what level it is, somebody knows more than I do about this particular topic and acknowledging that and then letting that person lead that particular item, whatever it may be, or aspect of a project, I think one has to make the room for that because if you don't, then there's no collaboration. Right. And at the same time, what you bring from not being in the, the total leads, what leadership can bring is just a little bit of perspective, like step right. it being able to step out and say, oh, well, what about this? And so I, that's, I think, a nice thing. It's not that it's necessarily top-down thing in, in that way, but more about like having a like the perspective to see see something in a different angle after you've been digging in deeply. On yeah, something. and what one does, will, what one actually does with that information and that knowledge, right? That's kind of our job in a way. Like, what do we yeah. do? You've told me this now. What am I going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? So right. that we can How do we take it to step. the next exactly. step? Exactly. Yeah. And including everyone in that conversation, I think, is most fruitful. Welcome to Best Practice a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're very excited to be joined by Sarah Lepargolo and Oliver Link of Seldorf Architects about how to build collaborative practices. Sarah is a partner at Seldorf Architects with three decades of professional experience and has been with the firm for over 20 years. She has worked on many of the firm's major projects, including large-scale new construction and cultural facilities. Ms. Lepergolo is currently partner in charge for the expansion and renovation of the Museum of Contemporary Art, San Diego, and the expansion and enhancement of the Frick Collection. Additionally, she has significant experience with ground-up construction, having served as partner in charge on large-scale projects, such as the Sunset Park Material Recovery Facility in Brooklyn and 211th Avenue, a 19-story residential condominium in New York City. Sarah has also received a Bachelor of Architecture degree from Syracuse University and has studied and worked in England, Italy, and Japan. She is a fellow of the American Institute of Architects, treasurer of the board of Open House New York, a really amazing uh, program, and sits on the advisory board of Syracuse University's School of Architecture. Oliver Link is an associate partner at Seldorf Architects with 20 years experience working on architecture projects in South Africa, the United Kingdom, France, Italy, Brazil, and across the United States. His portfolio includes a large variety of projects with emphasis on museum and gallery design, as well as retail and high-end residential design for internationally known apparel brands and high-profile residential clients. Since joining Seldorf Architects in 2011, he has managed many of the firm's museum and art-related projects, including the Glass Museum, Le Stanze, Del Vetro in Venice, galleries for Michael Werner Gallery, and Gagosian in London and New York, as well as Christie's Galleries in Paris. He is currently the project manager on the expansion and enhancement project of the Frick Collection in New York. And with that, thank you very much for joining us today, Sarah and Oliver. Thank you again, Chris, for joining us as well. Thanks for having us. Well, thank you. Thank you for having us. It's really a wonderful series that you do. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, thanks. Super excited. So I think to start off with, we can just kind of start off with just thinking of the question on what is your perspective on practice? You know, it has various definitions people use, but for you, and maybe we can start off with Sarah, like what is your perspective on practice? That you have to keep doing it. Practice, practice, practice. It's a profession that um, we're learning never really stops, right? But joking aside, I think, you know, it's evolving. We still are, are building things by hand, right? Essentially, it's a lot of what has existed for so long, but also new new things ahead of us and new ways of working together. And obviously with technology and the issues around that face our world with climate change. So I think all of that is adds to what is ahead of us and what we're currently dealing with, but always kind of their central characteristics of we are building architecture and space for people to inhabit. Yeah, I mean, just to add to that, I mean, I think the process of practice and the process of architecture takes a lot of time. It can generally be an inefficient process just by the nature of having to deal with a lot of moving parts. You're never really working in an isolated environment. And so I think the sort of how one continuously wants to make 
the process of working in a practice as efficient as possible. And I think also a lot of our practice is, is sort of on re, is research-based. And as Sarah said, that's often learning new things on every project. And I think that's also why the sort of diversity of our portfolio gives us new and interesting projects all the time. So yeah. we're never sort of shoehorned. We're always learning, as Sarah says. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no. Yeah, and, you know, just the, what you said, Oliver, about always trying to find efficient ways to do things and various parts of our profession keeping up with and advancing and how fast the computers are versus how fast something can actually really get built. There's always these competing things going at us. What's the working dialogue between the two of you at Seldorf? Are you working closely on any projects or on any initiatives as leaders in the firm? Yeah, actually, Sarah and I work together on the Frick Museum expansion. I was and am still the project manager. Since then, I have become a design partner. Sarah is, is a design partner on that project, but we collaborate very regularly on that project. But, but even outside of our project, I think we, I rely a lot on Sarah's sort of camaraderie and just bouncing things off her all the time. So we, we have a, I mean, you know, we have a relationship outside of our, our projects as well that I think is contributing to my growth, but also to the practice as a whole. Yeah, I think that's right, Oliver. I, and I value Oliver's expertise on many things and his unbelievable project management skills that we really are true value to the firm and also learn, you know, such a great mentor to a lot of people in the office to kind of help with all of those skills that aren't readily learned in school necessarily. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what those excellent skills are from Oliver and what you're talking about with the rest of the team to try to mentor some of those, some of those great approaches. I guess in the project management role, um, which, you know, I still have, as I said, and but have also sort of like moved on from, you know, I hope that other project managers have seen me as a mentor. I joined Seldorf 10 years ago as a project manager and found just the sort of setup of the firm was immensely supportive in just sort of that role and how I could practice and be an efficient project manager was was incredible just moving from one firm to this particular firm. The previous firm was a much smaller firm and it didn't have, in a way, a sort of system set up or a hierarchy set up that is, we have set up here. But I say hierarchy, not just more about, you know, who's at different tiers, but more about the support system of it. Because mm -hmm. I think, you know, one can always go, like I have and gone always to Sarah for support, but I can also go to other project managers and so on and so forth. I think working as a project manager in our office is a very unique role. We see it that way. We're not a small firm. We're, you know, a firm of 70 staff members and our project management role is, it includes looking, you know, at schedules, budgets, spreadsheets, keeping things in check. But the project managers are really also involved in the design and working closely with design partners and Annabelle to sort of move along you know, move along this process that I said earlier sort of takes a lot of time and takes an entire village and a, and a support system to keep moving. So I think that's, you know, I sort of pride myself in my project management skills as, as being always as efficient as possible and looking for honing in on the specifics and trying to move things forward and always sort of pushing the noise aside because there's just so much that goes on in, in our profession and in our, you know, on, on all projects and in our environment that one just needs to sort of keep things moving forward and be as efficient as possible. So I think an aspect of that is kind of a mantra of closing the loop, meaning there's so much information that so many details that go into making a building or seeing a project through and that sort of keeping your eye on the ball and making sure that when something begins, a conversation begins, you're able to completely put a loop on it and finish it off. And I think that's really very, very important to getting things done and built. And I think that that's the role of the project manager as well. All of us, all of our roles, but really in particular, you know, making sure that we have closure. I wonder, Oliver, if you would resonate with this um, way of operating or project managing that uh, Zoe Starr from DSR brought up in our last conversation, which had to do around like there's always this thing that 
you have to know what to push off, like when a decision needs to be made today versus when it needs to be made later. And like how much, even to know, like how much time do you have in a sense to be able to make that decision? Is that part of your own process too, for like thinking about from, from a project management perspective, or do you have other sort of maybe like uh, rules of thumb that you use that help you in a given moment, be able to say, okay, this is not appropriate for now, or like this is, Maybe you can walk us all through that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think prioritization is obviously key. And um, you know, I when I when I sort of was a younger project manager, I sort of developed systems of lists and was able to sort of keep track of things in that way. But there is always, the, as you say, the short-term responses and the long-term responses. And the key is to sort of identify what can be on what track, in a sense. Getting into a system of meeting with one's teams regularly, internally, with design partners, with Annabelle, but with the team and, and sort of checking in as much as possible and communicating as much as possible, I think is key just to make sure nobody is um, there. <laughs> confused about the priorities. I think that's key is this just making sure that, and, and then I, you know, I want to add, it's, it's, one has to be very careful that there is no micromanaging involved because you don't want to be sort of hovering over someone so that they're not yeah. feeling that they can work in a, in a sort of free environment and not be sort of watched on all yeah. the time. But I think uh, setting clear expectations, right, Oliver, that's really what that's about right. with your team. If your expectations are clear, then you just have more room for everyone to be successful because they understand what their role is, what their job is to do in the, any given moment. Sarah, you have you have this experience running your own office before you joined Seldorf. And when you joined Seldorf, it was only 25 and now it's in the 70s. What if you, in that time from you having returned to a larger practice, what new lessons might you have folded in in retrospect to your old practice? Because a lot of listeners are in a smaller scale than 70. They're maybe between five to 30 around that. So um, we always like to highlight what larger practices are discovering and try to bring them to a smaller scale. Smaller, yeah. So to clarify, I actually started at Seldorf in 1994 when we were five people. And after a, a number of years, I left and started my own practice and did that for about five years and then came back to the firm. And when I came back, you know, I left when we were five, I came back, we were about 20, 25. And what are the lessons I learned from a small firm to bring to a large firm? I think it's certain systems that you, as a, a smaller company, that you have to put in place to get things done. Obviously, you bring that with you. Um, I think what a larger firm brings is, you know, more resources, right? And I think it's, you know, being able to identify when do we need to shift gears? When do we need to bring that person on board now that, you know, will really unlock easier ways for us to do work, right? So I think the good thing about having a small, your own firm and then going to a larger firm is that you really know how you have to get things done. So you understand that and you understand that from the people that are, are working at every level because you're, you're kind of doing everything when it's your own small firm, right? So you, you bring an understanding back, I think, to the larger structure. But there's a lot as, you know, how you scale from 25 to then we grew very organically and slowly in this office. So there wasn't like a gigantic project that suddenly we increased overnight. It was a very kind of slow and steady and methodical growth. And I think those at that point, um, you really try to at each of these inflections understand like, OK, what do we need here right now? Like what new kind of staff member do we need to kind of unlock us to be able to go on to the next step in the practice in the firm. And, you know, when we were five people, there was no hierarchy. There was Annabelle and there was all of us working on our individual projects. But as a firm gets larger, right, you have to start to put systems in place and to be able for everyone to feel kind of safe and protected in their roles that they have backup. So I probably answered multiple questions in there, but. Uh. <laughs> I'm curious then from both of your experiences, what kind of shifts have you seen while you've been at Seldorf? And going back to maybe your point, Sarah, about who is that person that we need to hire that kind of unlocks, 
maybe you can unpack a little bit of like the sure. type of role that was necessary at what inflection point. Right. So we didn't really have an HR person for a long time, right? It wasn't necessary. Annabelle and I were doing proposals ourselves, negotiating and all that. And there became a moment where like, we need someone. <laughs> we need someone that can handle the proposals. We need someone that can maybe do more HR for us. And we we're like, we're never, ever going to find that person under one hat. It's just impossible. But we did. We found him, Bill. Bill Bigelow, wherever you are out there. And he he was really instrumental in helping us kind of go to the next level of where we could kind of take on a little bit larger projects at that time. And uh, yeah, so that we could, you know, our talents could be focused more on other things and people that could kind of focus on proposals and, and uh, other things could, could do their work. I mean, it make, you know, it makes total sense that that would be necessary after a while. Yeah, and to Sarah's point, also growing, growing organically. I mean, I joined the firm when I it was about just under 40 people, and now we're 65, 70. You know, our interviewing process is, we spend a lot of time on the interviewing process because, you know, we feel creating the right team and, you know, we have the most amazing, fantastic group of people is really key as opposed to adding five, 10 people for a specific project and so on and so forth. That's just really not how we... Right. We like to operate. So we spend a lot of time on the interview process and strategically talking about what level of person do we need at this point? What level of person do we want to hire that could then grow into XYZ? Do we want to not hire at that level because that person can grow from within? That's always part of our, our strategy then. It might take a little longer at the beginning, but it pays off ultimately. I think. Yeah, we, we have people that have been with the firm for many, many years, which is really fantastic. And I think it speaks to what Oliver is saying is that we don't ever, just the way in which we grew slowly, we don't hire like that. And because we want to be sure that the person that's coming is somebody that will will stick around and really, because it just enriches the, your experience. The more you, there's a lot to learn in architecture. So the more you can stick in one place and really take in what there is to learn and with, from your colleagues, from the projects you're on, it really is beneficial to the architect, but also to the, the firm as a whole. And I've actually yeah. heard, Sorry. oh, go ahead, Oliver. No, I was just going to continue on that and, you know, just say that uh, having, you know, not had my own practice, but worked first and foremost in firms of four people, sometimes two people, you know, that all rounded experience uh, um, is obviously key, even as you grow then to a project manager's level and beyond, because you understand, obviously, as Sarah said, all those complexities of the project. I think the key is that if someone has not had that same path, which many people haven't, is to just really understand and identify where they're coming from. And I think that's, as a project manager, is often a challenge or not a challenge, but it's a challenge and an opportunity, I would say. But something one should keep in mind is who's joining this team now? Who's in this meeting? Okay. You know, just remembering where, not remembering everyone's resume off the top of your head, but just sort of contextualizing that so that that person can get the right responses and growth within the firm, I think is key as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interestingly, we've heard from other firms a similar approach to hiring where it's actually disconnected from new projects in the firm. And so I'm curious how you, how do you plan when to hire or know when to hire when it is maybe not tied to the thing that you might expect it to be tied to? So like you're adding like this, um, you're adding to the infrastructure of the team, right. but not necessarily connected to new opportunities in the firm. So Sarah, should I go in? Okay. <laughs> I mean, in the background, I will say we are Excel spreadsheet geeks. So we have, we look at staffing on a weekly basis, all the project managers meet, we assign staff, most staff on similar projects week by week, it changes with deadlines, things move around. And that same chart plugs into a bigger chart that looks ahead three months or six months. And it actually lists all the staff and the projects that they're on, but it also sort of tallies up the overall staff within each category. And then we look at that strategically. So then if a project comes along, we know we're short this or short that or short that. And 
but it's not just one project. It's always yeah. looking back, going back to that mega chart that I'm explaining yeah. and just looking at it from a, from a bigger picture. Yeah, I mean, I think it's almost like a heat map in that, <laughs> right, with that right. chart. It's sort of like we ask everyone to put in what they need. And that I know that sounds a bit obvious, of a wish right? list, it's, right? It's, it's more of a wish list, not like so abstract, like I want ten people on my team, but more what what is it that they really need? And so that way we get a read of like, okay, this is where we're really short, and that prompts us to obviously look for people, but it also prompts us to kind of re-examine the teams. Do we have the right people? Can we move this person here and there? It's exhaustive process. Uh, right but it it's worked out so far we'll have to keep it going and it's also a tool that we use to look at um, staff members and see what types of projects and work they've been doing if they've been on the same type of typology for a year or if they've been doing let's say renderings for a year it's time which typically we don't have it's time to move them into a on a CA project where they can really get more experience on in construction and so on and so forth so it's that same game with the same you know list of staff and projects but also addressing that because we want everyone to get well-rounded yeah just as we have a variety of different typologies it's the same way we don't really want to have departments, if you will, of like people that just do residential or just, we just feel like it makes a better architect, a more well-rounded architect to have varying experiences of different typologies and different clients. I, I really appreciate that this is unique. I, we haven't heard that, that kind of practice before of, of looking at the need that people are requesting and likely it's through it's not even like a, I need a person, but we have a challenge with this, or it's like thematic, likely mm-hmm. probably where the challenges are bucketed, right? Yes. But that you're looking at those th- themes consistently to then figure out how to remove or lower the friction that those things yes. present. Yeah. And I think that's a really amazing way to look at uh, resourcing that's so, what I really appreciated from that perspective is that it, because it's tied to themes, it's not oftentimes you might hear that like how people are talked about sort of is like staff or like a resource or something, right? It's almost a utility. What you're by this practice, what you're saying is actually, no, it's not the utility we're looking. It's like we need people with special sets of skills that can help us organizationally become more, much more effective, but mm-hmm. it's more of a one plus one equals three approach as opposed to like, hey, I just need bodies, Right. That's absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, no question with that, but that's really, uh, really commendable. I feel like this is definitely one of those like takeaways for everybody that's listening. Should write that one down because it's again looking at the entire firm as a as a system of challenges that it's trying to resolve in real time. Some of it it can predict, some of it it can't. But it's more about finding the people that can help answer those questions as they come up. So that the whole team is learning almost like a hive mind from that practice, which is really awesome. So with that kind of wisdom that the team has, it's clearly there embedded. I'm curious, like what other, you know, do you have other ways in which you've made, you've been able to make like, let's say things like collaboration really successful within teams? Like how do you have a similar lens by which to look at how teams are operating, not at the holistic level of the whole firm, but just more within projects? Yeah, loosely. I mean, I think one thing I would say is that we begin our process very small with a small group, right? Even though it may be a large, ultimately a large project, we start small, start to really identify what is the problem? What are we after? What is it that we want out of this project, right? And I think that that and then as it formulates, then the team can expand. And I think that that helps to mitigate maybe frustration and that you're not, because there's a lot of iteration that happens. And so to really kind of identify what that, what the project is, it doesn't mean it can't change. It doesn't mean people bring their own intelligence and things morph and, and because of course that happens, but it's really setting out the, the thesis, if you will, starts small and then, and then the team absorbed. I, I don't know if, I think a lot of times you get a big project, like all hands on deck. We don't operate that way. Obviously, well, that just, it gets that filled just, out. But yeah, and that just sort of 
says inefficiency to me. Like you're right, like start small, start very concentrated, take what you need. And because it's an iterative process, it builds up, it builds up, it builds up, right? So the teams get bigger as the teams need to grow and as the project gets more complex and as we move into the next round or the phases of the project. We're a very collaborative office. Annabelle is, you know, the design lead on all of our projects. You know, the design partners work very closely with her on developing designs, but so do the project managers and the teams. And as I mentioned earlier, because it being so research-based, when you have these meetings or these design moments or sessions, you want to make sure, you know, they, they're very, they may be one hour or two hours that week for that project for everyone to be around the table. And so you want to make sure that the research is done and brought to the table in the most sort of direct and efficient way so that we have the tools to start designing and moving, moving exactly. the project forward. What's nice about that is that you give someone on the team, be it at the architectural design level, you give them the power of the sort of research, the knowledge, right? So they go away, they spend time doing research. They're the ones now that know more about the site or the zoning or the this than we do, right? And so they come, they present that. And I just feel like- have ownership. They have ownership, ownership over that, that aspect, that, which is very, very important. Exactly, exactly. That's fascinating. What what about on the side of the client side, like as you're working as a small group in the earliest stages, and then as that group is growing on sort of the client slash end user side of this, how are you, and I'm trying to also piece together the way you're thinking about noise, Oliver, sort of like, and being strategic about when information is coming in or when feedback is going out. How do you think about that from an external lens? I mean, ultimately, the client is who gives us projects and who give us work and who pay the bills, right? So, but I think part of our process is also to, our collaborative process is to say that the client is yet another team member in a way, right? And so we try to educate them about the process as much as possible so that they're part of the process. And obviously there are expectations, there are schedules, and we try to sort of we, we stick to those, but we try to measure those and give, you know, heads up where we are and, and keep clients as looped in as possible with updates beyond the regular meetings and meeting minutes and so on and so forth. Our design comes out of this process, right? It's not somebody sitting in a corner in a dark room and just <laughs> whipping out a design. It's it's really um, this, this collaborative process within our office with us and our client and with the consultants and any other members of that are part of the design team. I would add, Oliver, that I think that in a way that the obviously the client is looking for leadership from us, right? That's that's very, very important. But I think that the client sometimes knows more than we know, right? In the beginning right. anyway, they know what they want. And I think the careful listening is part of that collaboration, really hearing what it is but taking that and bringing forth something that that was unexpected to them or something that came out of real thought and study. And just, I always say that architecture is the most collaborative of professions in the sense that we can't do any of what we do without people and teams, right? We can't, we need builders, we need engineers, we need our, our client, we need our colleagues, obviously. So sometimes I think people think of architecture as the lone person in the corner, as Oliver said, working away. But we all know, right, that it's a much more necessary group of people around you all the time. And I think that's what's great about it. It's great. It's fantastic to be on site with, with a contractor and working things out that you weren't expecting to. Of course, always there's there can be tension, but oftentimes we've found that it's an amazing process working with the builder and what you can learn from that. How would you say the collaborative nature of the, the firm impacts the culture of the firm? Do you find that, I mean, there's some proof points there, like the tenure of people in the firm is probably a good indication that like the collaborative nature is something that people are really uh, appreciative, but do you find other ways in which you get feedback from your own employees as to like, I mean, I would imagine that having that responsibility of doing the research for a new project coming in is really amazing opportunity for someone potentially a more junior position to be able to have that ownership and that authority. I mean, 
is it very explicit? Maybe that's another way to frame the question. Do you find that the culture is explicit in some sense, or does it emerge organically from like the collaborative nature of the firm? I think it's not explicit. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Oliver. What I, would you I agree. I agree. I don't think it's explicit. I think it comes out of the nature of the way learning to work together in, in this way. Maybe it might seem like because the teams start out small that there isn't like collaborations per se from the start. But I, I think that it really is for the benefit of everyone to kind of grow the team as we grow in the project. So it's not explicit, but I think that that, you know, everyone taking ownership of their what they do, bringing their intelligence to the table is what we want. I always say it's my business to make you a good architect. So there's I don't want to I'm not going to step in your way. I want you to do what you can do and allow that to foster that so that no one feels like they're held back. What's holding you back is just experience, just getting in there and learning more and more. Well, I think that's what's key, the word experience, because I, I sort of go into a collaborative process or meeting knowing I only know what I know, right? But somebody, no matter what level it is, somebody knows more than I do about this particular topic and acknowledging that and then letting that person lead that particular item, whatever it may be, or aspect of a project, I think one has to make the room for that, because if you don't, then there's no collaboration. Right. And at the same time, what you bring from not being in the, the total leads, what leadership can bring is just a little bit of perspective, like step right. it being able to step out and say, oh, well, what about this? And so I, that's, I think, a nice thing. It's not that it's necessarily top down thing in, in that way, but more about like having a like the perspective to see see something in a different angle after you've been digging in deeply. Yeah, and what one does, will, what one actually does with that information and that knowledge, right? That's kind of our job in a way. Like, what do we yeah. do? You've told me this now. What am I going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? So right. that we can. How do we to take it to step. the next exactly. step? Exactly. Yeah. And including everyone in that conversation, I think, is most fruitful. Yeah. Do you know from the, maybe because it's so research based and it seems like there's a very iterative way in which it goes about each new project has a similar let's say, intentional way of starting and evolving and maybe mapped over with like Seldorf's unique take on solutions for a project that is very research driven, which means that the outcome might never be, you know, you might not have the idea of the outcome beforehand, right? Right. Do you know already or have anticipate where in the process you expect the most uncertainty? As an example, in the conversation with with the DSR team last week, for them, the CA process is a very, it's almost like where almost everything gets, like a lot of places, uh, items get resolved in CA. And so for them, they strategically have but even budgeted to account for the all the resolution that happens at the end. They try as much to kind of bring that forward. But in Seldorf's instance, do you have that kind of already mapped out? Like, is there a place in the project timeline where you anticipate, okay, this is where the most uncertainty is. After we cross this, everything else is pretty like, we have way more clarity and can be done pretty, not streamlined, but yeah, you understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I tend to go with our colleagues. <laughs> you know, I think, yes, would it be great if everything is buttoned up at the end of CDs and we just disappear? <laughs> but that's just not the reality. And I think what we're finding is Schedule pressures are making us to come, making us come up with new ways of where can we accelerate. And so, you're seeing on more and more projects that there is pre-construction. CMs are uh, construction managers are invited into the design process sooner, especially on larger institutional developer projects. Their knowledge base comes in sooner into the process, into the design process. Obviously, we try the drawings. Yes, we try and manage it as much as possible. We don't want them interfering. But at the same time, we've found over the years, for example, with millwork design, you know, we we would draw millwork details almost to the level that someone could just take it and run and build it, right? Which is great. But at the same time, there's an entire shop drawing process, which adds another few months to the project. And you do yet that whole thing over again, and you mm. find out that some of what you drew is really not that material is not available, or that material will take six months to come from Japan, or whatever it is, it's suddenly 
had I known that six months ago, right, that would have been good. So I think we are finding that I'm seeing that we have to adjust our fees along the projects a little bit more and make sure that we have enough in the end, enough in the end and that we can stay involved and we have to stay involved. And I think builders are getting more and more sophisticated as well. They're now getting involved through the BIM process. And as I said, this pre-construction process much earlier on. So when is the most uncertainty? I would say at the beginning, maybe. But yeah, then, I would say, that's what I was going to Especially, add. Yeah, especially because we don't jump to like some well, clarity right away, you know. I think that's right. I don't think that I don't I think that we don't necessarily come to a project with a preconceived notion. Sometimes that happens, but I think it really comes out of learning what the what is the site, the importance of the context, the importance of who this client is. So things have to get teased out. And I, so there can be a, some ups and downs during schematic design in terms of iterations and uncertainty. But that's part of the process and depends on the client, depends on the site, the complexities of the site. Sometimes when we go to landmarks, there's iterations around landmarks that could really hold things up. So yeah, I think the beginning and the end (laughs) is uh, where there's issues, right? Right. Usually. In light of, because every project has its own world of schedule and time but we live in this calendar universe. (laughs) How do you like recognize systems that are repeating on a weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly basis? It's sort of a question about like, what is your typical work week, month, quarter look like in both of your roles? Oh my gosh, damned. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's- Zoom made it, Zoom- I I was just gonna go there. Okay, Zoom world made it quite, uh, sorry, Oliver, but- quite interesting because no one had to commute anymore, right? So it was like every calendar slot was filled and it would be like, oh my God, I haven't eaten today. Oh, did I even go to the bathroom? That kind of craziness. So you in a way had to be very intentional. Like sometimes where I was staying sometime during the pandemic was two floors. And sometimes I would be like intentionally forget like, okay, I'll go get that later because at least it will make me get up from my desk and walk down the steps and get some exercise. Like, I don't have to think about bringing everything upstairs all at once. So some kind of crazy little things to sort of manage those intense days. And so now it's back to like, oh, we need to book half hour to get there and right. a half hour to get back. So it changes things. But I mean, generally, oh. My, you know, our calendars, as you said, it's not, it's a calendar year, but it's not because it relates to projects and project schedules, right? So you're always thinking in terms of your world is sort of, you have some projects where it's like this one year, one year schedule. And then the brick, for example, is sort of a six year schedule. So you're in a way, always sort of adjusting yourself when you go to this meeting for this project and this meeting for that project, because you have to adjust really, it's sort of anticipated completion if that makes any sense. So, I mean, just, I mean, on a weekly basis, as yeah, as Sarah said, I mean, we try and be as, as efficient as possible with meetings, but the meetings are layers of meetings, internal meetings, internal meetings with your teams, internal meetings with the design partner and Annabelle, and then previews of presentations and then the presentation. So yeah, and we can fill up very quickly. I mean, to the point that you start, that I put things in my calendar just to block out time to sort of put pencil to paper and sketch quietly. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask a question about emails. Well, <laughs> horrible emails are. Oh, well, um, that could be a actually, whole series, right? <laughs> yeah, we just we also got an audience question about how the firm has dealt with hybrid work. So maybe you could speak a little bit more to that in terms of email exchange, Zoom, having to reconsider the logistics of meetings now, whereas, you know, in the past, you didn't really have to. I, I think what I found to be most challenging, and I would think a lot of people found that, was the, the multiple forms of communication that really intensified. So because we were all remote in the beginning, we were put in place a Teams chat thing. So there's Teams going on <laughs> chatting. There's, you're on your Zoom call. There's people texting you, there's emails coming in. And that kind of multi-layer, it's not good for you. It's not good for the brain. And I, I think that maybe the, the more 
the older staff is used to having to communicate all day long, but I think it was probably challenging for people who were excited to sit at their desk and get through a drawing and all of a sudden they're getting like pinged all over the place. And I think that is an adjustment. I mean, it's, it's an adjustment for everyone. It's not, I don't like it, but even for, if you spend your day, like really focused on something, it's really hard to concentrate when all that communication is gone. But we got through it. We were really efficient and managed and blocked out team meetings. And really, in a way, it became quite nice to work with teams. Annabelle was in you know, all of these weekly meetings, and, and it was great for the younger staff to work with her one-on-one or uh, us in a group. So it provided some really nice, nice moments together, I think. I mean, as far as hybrid goes, I think we're still learning, right, Sarah? We're not. Yeah, we're still, yeah, we're still there. Uh, we're still in our. We're still hybrid. <laughs> we're hybrid, right? And we're still trying to figure out the best way forward. I think everyone is recognizing right. that they will. It is a hybrid world in right. some degree. Yeah. Yeah, I was only going to uh, kind of add to that too about communication. At, at Monograph, we're fully remote, and we weren't initially going to. Th- do that. Uh, it was only after the pandemic where it kind of opened up that ability for us to strategically now be able to hire team members from anywhere. And I completely resonate with this idea of like all the constant stream of communication. It's almost never off. And you have to kind of build in, like, even in your calendar, you have to kind of like block out time for yeah. moments in which like it's just heads down time. And there's a uh, Paul Graham, who's well known in this in sort of the startup community, has an essay he wrote a while back called "What Is It uh, Makers versus Manager Schedules." And basically, you have to block out your calendar so in the morning you have it's like makers time versus mm-hmm. manager time is in the afternoon, and that's when you can be more responsive to questions people will ask you, or it's because in engineering terms and software engineering, this whole idea, and it's actually very applicable in creative practices too, is the idea of being flow. Are you like Mm -hmm. in a flow state, which is what you know, it? you know, when you're in it, because you're just in that drawing, like listening to music and like, just, it's just, you're in it. Right. That's great. I love that. And so it's figuring out ways to maximize for that because this, the world of software engineering has figured out that if you have, it's not just the time on your calendar, it's the ramp up time to be in that flow state for that meeting. So mm-hmm. even if you have a meeting, it's probably better for you to, out, to like not have a meeting 15 minutes before that meeting so that you have time to prepare mentally for the amount of depth you need to be in. That's like a really fascinating way of looking at how to kind of take control back over your mm-hmm. calendar in some sense. Right. We use other methods too, like if it's not an immediate answer that you need, and it's information that you're trying to communicate, then record it using a tool called Loom and send it via Slack, which is what we use, right? And so that allows the person receiving it to then view it on their time when it's most appropriate to then respond in detail or something or their own Loom backwards. And we have found asynchronous communication to be something that we really highly leverage here at Monograph to improve what we're talking about now is just really, really important. Yeah, That's great. Yeah. I'm always so interested in how other people are doing things because I, I find it's it's changing our brains, right? The way this constant communication is. Boom. Okay. I'll check it out. <laughs> we have another question from the community. It's uh, one of the favorites from the community, which is, what do you least like about practice or the building industry? <sighs> <laughs> cut deep. Cut steep. <laughs> well, I think when Oliver was talking about kind of your day and how to organize your week and so on and, and like your team meetings and so on, the thing that he didn't mention is when all of a sudden there is something that has to be attended to immediately. Something happened on site, something happened that was misunderstanding. And so that is not fun ever, like dealing with a problem at a construction site is always really stressful. You're dealing with lots of money all the time with with construction and your clients' money. And so so being very cognizant of that and and the issues and things that can go wrong is just the most stressful part, I think, of our jobs. And so that is my least favorite, dealing with those things. They come up and they have to be dealt with, but it's not fun. And I think the other part is the closeout of a project. Sometimes it's... (laughs) 
True. nice and closed out and buttoned up, but other times you're on it for a few more months and it's just your teams like have moved on. <laughs> <laughs> right. But yeah. <laughs> Questions are top of mind for you right now at Seldorf. I think for us and probably lots of people in the profession is how we truly expand diversity in the profession. So, you know, we're always talking about it. We're always struggling and trying. And I mean, it may be what everybody else is saying too, but it, it is true. It is top of mind and how we can, can make this a more equitable profession. And it starts with us. And it, it also starts well beyond, uh, well before high school and college. And I think that, you know, we're talking about ways in which we can, you know, have an impact in that way very early on you know, getting involved in middle school programs where we can really have role models for people that never imagined being in the profession. That's top of mind for me. Yeah. And I think we're finding it's more about us, not advertising, but sort of making sure we are getting, that we are known in a much broader population, right? Than or, 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 or schools or, you know, high schools and so on. It's the flip side, really. It's like, how do people get to know about architecture as a profession and how do they get to know about us? So I think that's one of our efforts is to do workshops, presentations to schools. We did one series last year with City Tech and um, we did a sort of workshop program. I think it was a four series program. And then whoever attended the workshop was then allowed to submit a... Um, application. application for summer internship and then we selected two interns out of that workshop so yeah that's always on our mind and always a sort of topic of conversation we try to have these sort of regular forums where we can talk about equity and diversity and inclusion and also include sort of either text or an article or something that then we can or film even that we can then talk as a group we have to restart our film club we had a yes our edi film club going which was very nice we have to get the next movie on on the boards another audience question here could you please share any words of advice for people who recently entered a practice and ways of finding ownership of projects when things are still new and daunting so i think it's kind of a question about being new to practice and how to find ownership while dealing with your own uncertainty about what you're capable of and where you can have uh, make a contribution despite your being new to practice. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the advice I would give is to be extremely curious and ask lots of questions. Do as much research as you can. Don't hide behind the fear of not knowing something, turn that around and really dig in and be that researcher, find out what you need to know. It doesn't help anyone to shy away. And if you get feedback that you're not happy with, I think it's also asking, like, don't just change my drawing, but actually explain to me what I could have done better. And, you know, asking for that kind of feedback, I think is important. Yeah, I think realizing that it's this two-way street, right? Is that you're taking ownership of something, but you you don't want to sort of just dead end it. You want to invite people into the conversation. And that right. allows you to take something away from that process as well. Well, I think we're almost at time. So I'll kind of wrap it up with our favorite question here at Monograph. And that is, what is the kindest, nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? I could start off with you, Sarah. Oh, okay. Along the lines of the last question about being young in a firm, I think about one of my first jobs in Boston at Pelicus Manfredi, where my project manager was just an extremely generous, incredible role model. And she didn't know she was doing it as a kindness, but she went and had a baby. And by her having the baby, it really like allowed me to take over in a ways that I wouldn't normally have done at that age. But uh, she was also very trustworthy. And then on a personal level, I'll just say that my youngest brother passed away in 2011 from ALS and the kindness that I saw in all my friends and colleagues and from many years prior and everything was really, to me, the, the most meaningful thing that I've experienced. Yeah, I think for me, um, it's really not one person in particular, although I do want to call out some people in specific, but it, always along the way of my career, I think just thinking of 
you know, in particular women who have given me <laughs> opportunities. My first job in New York was for a small firm run by a woman-owned woman -owned business and where I really was given the sort of opportunity to just take on a project. I mean, I was out of school for a year or not even a year and she entrusted me with projects. And then just sort of along the way, it's sort of in my next profession, I remember working with one of the vice presidents and she was very inspirational to me as far as the balance of project management and leadership, but also making sure that one is always engaging and collaborating with people and not just standing as a leader in this sort of mm -hmm. undemocratic way. And yeah, and then down to my personal life, you know, I lost my mother at an early age and there was also a woman there who she took the train and got on a bus and brought, you know, cooked meals for us, you know. So I just remember that as a real act of kindness as well. <laughs> mm. uh, thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, we always like to kind of take stock of the fact that, you know, there's the business side of things, but then there's also the really human reality of it and really appreciate those stories. And that's, um, that's a great question, by the way. Yeah, so. it is. <laughs> Very thought-provoking. Yeah. Thought One thinks about, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, right. I mean, it's... Uh, it brings you um, back. Yeah. yeah, it's good. It's a, Yeah, it's, it's been amazing to see kind of the, the breadth of different answers, and they kind of all come back to just, like, empathy and kindness in a way that's that's invigorating. I mean, it just it kind of brings also a positive light to the profession, too, um, which we very much enjoy. Well, with that, I guess I will we'll kind of uh, wrap up with just a quick blurb about Monograph, uh, your sponsors for this uh, webinar. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. About, I don't know how many, maybe 40% of us have some relationship with architecture in the firm. Hundreds of firms are using Monograph to visually manage their practice operations, streamline their repetitive processes, and empower their team to grow sustainably. In fact, 85% of Monograph reviews say easy, simple, and intuitive very rare within project management tools if you are accustomed to the ones that have been in the industry for a while. Monograph customers are entering timesheets daily in their browser to get real-time visuals on project performance. They are reducing their weekly staffing meetings by about 80%, and they're also forecasting future billings instantly. There's no generating reports here. Reports just happen, right? It's all integrated uh, magically. So they can run the right proactive business and make the right decisions. You can try it out for yourself. Start a free trial today for 10-day trial at uh, monograph.com or come to the live demo tomorrow, which Chris will add in the in the comments, monograph.com backslash webinars backslash demo. And uh, thank you all for joining us today. Really appreciate it. This has been a wonderful conversation with you both. Thank you Chris, as always. Thank you. Thanks, Cheers. George. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, huge pleasure. Bye. Thank you very much. And thanks to all the attendees here. Mm -hmm. As always, always a pleasure. And uh, you should, everybody should know that Seldorf is hiring. I saw at least three roles. There might be more. So mm -hmm. come uh, apply to work with Sarah and Oliver. Sounds like a really great, great. place to work. Yeah, come along. Awesome. Come along. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Bye. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.